Welcome back, listeners, to another beautiful week of Cult Stuff and Chill. Uh, this was Ashley's birthday week. Ooh. It was. Yeah. 29, Gemini feeling season. fine. One more year of your youth basically left until you hit that 30 milestone and then it's all downhill, baby. I'm assuming. I haven't hit 30 yet, so I couldn't tell you, but. It's just one year closer to the old lady coven. True. Also, okay, so low-key a little bit excited to turn 30 because um, 13 going on 30 where she goes, I want to be 30, flirty, and thriving. <laughs> so, you know, like 30 can't be that bad, right? No. No. 30 All of our new... over 30s listening are like rolling their eyes and wanting to punch me in the face right now. I feel like that was most people when that movie originally came mm-hmm. out. I've got approximately five months left of youth, and then it's all downhill. Yeah, how does it feel? How does it feel to be about oh half a year away from thirty? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I feel like childless thirty doesn't feel a whole lot different than twenty-five. So about the same. Uh, I do get a little bit butt hurt anymore if I don't get carded places. That. You know, brings me down a few pegs. Okay, so I have a story about um, feeling super confident this week. So I went to Walmart after work on Friday, which, like, who... Oh, I hate Walmart. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I was wearing, like, platform sandals. They had, like, a little bit of a two-inch platform on them. And I was going down the soap aisle, and there's this couple there. Two very short individuals. They couldn't have been taller than, like, 5'2", which... Personally, I'm not that much taller, but they were, like, trying to reach the soap on the top shelf. And I walk up, I'm like, can I help you? And they're like, I need the soap off of that one right there. And then I reached up with my long freaking orangutan arms and grabbed it. And I felt so (laughs) fucking powerful in that moment. And then the husband goes, thank God for tall people. And I was, like, in my bed, and I'm like, I'm (laughs) 5'4". I've got tall shoes, but I feel like a powerful fucking Amazon woman. So that was my little um, highlight of my week, I think, actually. I don't know that I really had a highlight this week, uh, other than my birthday, of course. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like, my birthday month, so it's just been, like, a highlight month. Yeah. Um, because I'm a Gemini, and therefore everything is about me constantly. Um, but... Your cupcakes I, were super cute, though. Yeah, I had succulent-themed cupcakes. Those were adorable and delicious, because they came from a local bakery that's, like, hundred It's been in business for, like, 130 or something years. So, like, they've really had time to perfect it. Um, I also had matching cookies to go with the cupcakes. Adorbs. <laughs> but also, I successfully wore a nightgown to my birthday dinner, and everyone complimented it, and we're like, oh, my God, that's such a cute dress. So, I guess that was a pretty big win for me, yeah. because really, it's just been my lifetime, like, my lifelong goal to make all of my regular clothes pajamas and have people not really be any the wiser. Honestly, that's, yeah, a great life goal is just a maximum comfort, maximum style at all, all times, right? I really take the, I take the day to night seriously. <laughs> if I can't go home and just get immediately into bed, I don't want it. Basically, <laughs> it's the vibe. That's exactly the vibe. <laughs> I feel as if I should also address um, why I'm drinking out of a wine glass. If you guys aren't aware, we record these about 9am. Um, I was feeling a little bit down today because I watched a really bummer of an episode of Handmaid's Tale before bed last night and it just like put
put me in a funk. So I'm not drinking alcohol, but uh, I do have Sunny D and Red Bull in a wine glass as if I'm drinking a mimosa. <laughs> it's tasty and delicious. Um, makes me feel like a classy redneck, basically, is the feeling. So let me just top off my glass. You've got a little bit of peach edition Red Bull. And it goes. Isn't classy redneck, like, just always the the aesthetic? Like, that's always the vibe. Mm-hmm. If I can't do redneck things with my friends, I don't want to be friends, honestly. And then <laughs> Sunny D on top. Beautiful. I feel like we talk about this a lot, but, like, growing up in a small town, there's a lot of, like, weird shit that happened in our childhood. And, like, the redneck things that I can remember doing with my friends, when we were... <laughs> Really, that, like, we could have been way more bumpkin than we were. I don't know how I'm alive today, basically. I remember specifically at one point, um, it was, I think, after my graduation party, so we were, like, too old to be doing this shit, but (laughs) my parents had these, like, giant blue barrels that we had used for garbage cans, and my friend Emily and I um, specifically were like, that looks like you could fit a person in there, so why don't we fit a person in there and then roll it down a hill? So we took turns uh, getting into this blue barrel and rolling each other down a hill. Um, So that was fun and not at all painful. And that's just, yeah, we also had, like, the habit of we would always go buy fireworks and then, like, shoot them off in really dangerous, reckless ways. So, yeah, that was, like, jackass, but the very tame version. High school (laughs) kid version. The very tame rural high school Mm -hmm. kid Although one time we were lighting off fireworks. So my parents, they live on um, quite a bit of acreage. So we were like lighting off fireworks in the field next to their house. And then it was like six or seven of my friends were over. So their cars were all like parked, lined up next to each other. And one of these fucking fireworks, it was called the reggae party. I do remember that (laughs) this firework was. But we lit it off and apparently we didn't like dig the hole around it quite deep enough and it tipped over. And so these fucking, I think it was just Roman candles, but they're shooting off and they're like hitting the fucking gas tank on my dad's like farmland. They're like going over my friend's soft top on her convertible. And I'm like, oh God. So I think that was probably the end of our firework experience because we definitely almost caused a large explosion. But we all survived (laughs) to tell the tale. Nothing caught fire or exploded. The soft top, I think, made it by with minimal scarring. So. Okay. So fun fact There are two things in my life that scare me. One of those being snakes, obviously. I know. Counterintuitive. I don't mind house snakes. I don't like wild farm Mm -hmm. snakes. Um, The other one being fireworks because there have been multiple occasions where I, it's like an abusive relationship. I've given fireworks a chance. I'm like, you know what? They're really not that bad. (laughs) And I have promptly that very same day almost been blown up by fireworks. And so... And I'm not talking, like, just Roman candles. I'm talking, like, industrial-grade mm-hmm. fireworks. So, like, I don't I don't want it. I don't need it. I just, I can't do it anymore. That's fair. You know, I don't think I've played with fireworks since that incident, so maybe, like, subconsciously I'm a little bit scarred, too. Yeah. No, there was one time with fireworks where, again, actually this time I hadn't given them the chance, but... I was at a horse show, and it was, like, uh, indoor. Like, it was, like, a pretty big horse show. It was, like, at the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were out there at night, 
and there was a wedding in a building nearby and they started setting off fireworks and this was like a pretty big class of like horses Mm -hmm. so there was like maybe 20 horses in the arena and like and it was I was a kid so it was all kids ponies but like literally my horse was the only one that was not totally like freaking out Mm -hmm. um she was scared but I like just kind of like you know sat and like I rode it out but all the other kids horses were just like running around and dumped them and like Mm-hmm. You know, a couple kids went to the hospital. It was just a oh, nightmare. No. So, hot take. I feel like fireworks at weddings are very ostentatious. I don't know. Why do you, why do you I need just, it? Yeah, why do you need it? Also, my whole thing with fireworks is unless I'm the one playing with the fire and lighting them off, I don't care. Like, it's not fun unless you're the one making the thing go boom. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just like, ooh, pretty, like... Listen, I can watch Eurovision reruns and get the Mm -hmm. same effect. Like, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, I don't... Have we talked about Eurovision yet on this podcast? I don't don't know if we have. Um, So, recommendations from 2021 Eurovision is definitely... What was she... Ukraine? Is that who? Yeah, Ukraine. Ukraine, top tier, top notch, will make you feel like you need to um, get into Slavic culture and be punching people while also raving. That's the vibe of that song. And also Iceland is like a groovy disco tune that I literally have to listen to every day. It is so good. <laughs> I love it. Um, I Malta is also really good. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like you can tell that the, the girl is kind of like an industry knockoff of Lizzo, but mm-hmm. it's still the song slaps. Yeah, it's a bop it's for good. sure. Today's topic is brought to you by me wanting to cover a cult, and <laughs> one that was not as dark as some of the other ones, because honestly, we've had some bummers lately. Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of start off, I want you to think of your TikTok for you page. For our listeners, if you don't have a TikTok, uh, you should get one. And I don't know about y'all, but on mine, I have a lot of, like, polyamorous, Marxist, mentally ill, queer, like, adults, like, Gen Zers and Millennials. Like, I don't really follow kids, because... Because that's fucking weird. Yeah. And kids don't have good content anyways. It's like... Yeah. Which is, you know what? It's kind of shocking I don't get more kids on my For You page, given the amount of mini-brand content that I have, (laughs) like, just put into the world recently. (laughs) That is shocking, but mm-hmm. also, you know, they understand that there's an adult demographic for that. True. So, take that take that demographic. Imagine it's a person. Now, imagine that you are that person and picture that you're like, you have just moved from the fucking asshole of the U.S., Ohio, into New York City. You just graduated college. You, like, you're in the city, New York City, new beginnings. You want to go out, experience life. In New York. Exactly. (laughs) And some guy, he comes up to you and he's like, hey, sugar tits, I'm a therapist. You want to come join my sex commune? We'll cover your housing and therapy. And like, of course, self-care queen, you're going to say yes. Am I? (laughs) Uh, If you are a polyamorous, Marxist, mentally ill, queer, adult, Gen Z, or millennial. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Me, personally, no. Given all those other checkboxes, okay, yeah. I could see that. Also, you're in New York, so, like, they're going to cover your housing. True. That alone (laughs) would 
you don't even need to give me free therapy if you tell me that you're going to pay my rent, then okay. Like, all right. Yeah, sure. I'll do whatever. <laughs> so, our story starts with Saul Bernard Newton, born Saul Bernard Cohen, on June 25th, 1906, in St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. Saul went to school at the University of Wisconsin. He later moved to Chicago and got mixed up with some communist and Antifa radical groups there. He joined a volunteer battalion to fight in the Spanish Civil War, and then later with the U.S. Army in World War II. Eventually, he was drafted into, like, the real U.S. Army, not just, like, the volunteer part, in 1943 during, again, World War II. So when he had completed his draft tour of duty, he went on to study psychotherapy, and around that time he got married to Dr. Jane Pierce, who is also a psychotherapist. And they went on to work at the William Alanson White Institute for a few years, um, but they eventually left after the death of Harry Stack Sullivan, who was one of White Institute's founders, and apparently Jane and Saul's idol. Now, kind of going off of this Sullivan guy for a little bit, basically, Jane and Saul, these two people, this couple, they viewed Harry as, like, the father of modern psychotherapy. Like, he was going to change the world. Harry, he was a neo-Freudian psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who believed that personality can never be isolated from the complex interpersonal relationships in which a person lives, and that the field of psychiatry is the field of interpersonal relations under any and all circumstances in which such relations exist. Harry Sullivan, he spent a lot of time researching and working to help people with psychosis and less time working on such administrative bullshit as actually publishing his findings. <laughs> So while he doesn't have a lot of self-published works, his contemporaries would say that he was actually one of the most important underground influences in modern American psychoanalysis. And then um, there was actually like a lady that went through all of his works and like meticulously pulled out all the important bits because he just had like all his notes and like a huge stack and, you know, files. Yeah, like mad scientist. Yeah. And so she went through all of it and like she published his works after he passed. A few of Sullivan's gold star points include making the first mention of significant other in psychological literature, consulting the U.S. military on their psychological screening exam and telling them that sexuality played a minute role in causing mental disorders and that adult homosexuals could and should be accepted into the military, which obviously the homophobes in charge, they were like, no, Mm-mm. we don't we don't want gays here. <laughs> so they, they overruled that decision. And of course, being kind of overtly gay in an incredibly homophobic and hypermasculine time period, this is the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. like, well, he wasn't alive in the 60s, but, you know, 40s and yeah. 50s. So, obviously, Jane and Saul were like, this dude's pretty fucking cool. So they were just devastated when he passed away. Um, and they did spend a few years working at the Institute, but then they're like, you know what, no. We, we need to go out, we need to spread our wings, and they had this bright idea to start their own institute for psychoanalysis research. And somewhere they could really continue and build upon Sullivan's research, um, maybe do some more testing, get some more information, and really just push the limits of modern psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Saul and Jane, they decide to open up the Sullivan Institute for Research and Psychoanalysis, of course named in honor of Harry Sullivan. And this was uh, started on the Upper West Side of New York City. 
Now, Saul and Jane, they thought Hair Bear had some really good ideas, but it wasn't quite like buttering their bread right, so they thought that they could just stretch it further, kind of fit their narrative. Their main belief was that the traditional nuclear family was just kind of a bummer, like just really a drag. Um, it's stressful, <laughs> and that they thought that the family setup was the root cause of all social anxiety, and frankly, that families were just oppressive. They were not a vibe. So how how do we get around this? Of course, you know where this is going. They decided to start a cult. Mm, of course. Logical next step. This cult, they just called it by the institute name. It doesn't really have a formal name. Um, outsiders called them the Solvinians or Solvinians. Solvinians. I don't know. It's a lot of uh, fucking... Too many syllables. Syllables for mm-hmm. this shit. Anyways, the cult was structured primarily as a polyamorous sex commune where everyone, therapists and patients alike, lived in the same building, they hung out, and they all had casual sex with one another. Some early members include Jackson Pollock, Richard Price, and Judy Collins. Of course, now we know there is, like, a massive power disparity between the therapists and the patients, and then, you know, famous people are coming in here to... Mm -hmm. In today's world, we'd be like, that is a sexual harassment nightmare, and that is definitely illegal. But back then, they're just like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. Who cares? So the main demographic of this group that they were trying to bring in was well-educated, secular-minded, sometimes Jewish, and sexually liberated people. Jane and Saul, they basically twisted Sullivan's writings, and their main method of gaining new members was preying on these young liberal college-age or recently graduated adults and often people unfamiliar with the city that were looking for, you know, to find mm-hmm. a place where they fit in or even sometimes just, like, people that were looking for roommates. So, I know you probably said this already. Approximately what year would this have been? Are we um, in, like, the 60s? 60s. Okay. Yeah. They started it in 1957, okay. I believe. Um, and then this is more into the 60s. So, so they, we're getting into, like, that free love kind of era, too. Yeah. Yeah, it was, like, the 1960s sexual revolution mm-hmm. around this time. And so people were, like, yeah, like, people that wanted to experiment, too, would kind of go here. Because it was, like, a very safe and sterile environment to mm-hmm. do it. Maybe not, like, sterile as in, like, it was clean. But it wasn't, um, like, they weren't out in the woods yeah, yeah. In, a, like, a dirty hippie commune. Uh-huh. It was, like, <laughs> apartments. It was in New York City. Mm-hmm. They were still close to civilization. So now Jane and Saul, they scouted specifically this demographic of people because they were still young. They, you know, recently graduated. They didn't have maybe a ton of money. They needed a support system. They needed security. Housing in New York City is a big thing even then. And, of course, they were, like, in, young and horny. Mm, obviously. And some of these people, you know, is kind of an opportune time to hit them because they might have already had a wedge driven between them and their families because they had gone to get, like, liberal arts degrees Mm. or, like, political degrees, which, like, were degrees at the time, but they weren't as popular and, you know, it was still kind of like, you can't go become a musician, son. You got to get a real job. (laughs) Why aren't you a doctor, son? Exactly. Yeah. Be an engineer like your old man or work in a factory. (laughs) This, on top of the sexual revolution, they just saw an opening and they ran with it. These therapists would have therapeutic sessions with their patients and would later go on to smash their patients. According to one former member and Harvard graduate, Paul Sprecher, the therapists did not regard therapeutic boundaries with any respect at all. 
and that the cult itself was incredibly neat experience for a newcomer in New York City. So on one hand, they recognize like, oh yeah, this isn't maybe the greatest environment, but also it was like kind of exciting and new. And this guy will be kind of important later. So most members in the cult lived in sex-segregated apartments in one of three massive buildings that the group owned. Members were strictly prohibited from engaging in exclusive relationships unless it was approved by Saul, the leader. These apartments were described as like living in a tiny village or on an island cut off from the rest of the world and society. And basically, it was like their own microcosm to elevate exclusively the voice of their leader. In the buildings were these large communal like whiteboards where they would just like go and like claim their next sexual conquest and they'd be like I'm gonna fuck Mark tonight and it'd be like okay well you know Susan's mm-hmm. gonna fuck Mark she wrote it on the board so that's gonna happen I mean all right that I don't know <laughs> that's just funny to me they're just like <laughs> it's very like analytical way to like plan who you're gonna hook up with is like oh just put it on the whiteboard it's like a chore list mm-hmm Exactly. Remember, the first commandment of this cult is that interpersonal relationships are a no-go. So during their weekly therapy sessions, cult members, in true MLM fashion, would be asked to isolate themselves from their existing family members unless they were going to ask for money. Mm. Um, Members were also instructed to give pretty much all of their assets to the cult when they joined. So, like, they were just dumping money into it. For frame of reference, at its height, the cult had approximately $12 in property assets alone. So, including they had like a, they had like a resort in the Catskills and like a private like house elsewhere. And then they had these three apartment buildings. Actually, they owned two, but then one was a rental. That is nuts. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, especially for having been the 60s. Like today, 12 million is still a lot of money. But back then, that's like a lot of money. Yeah. Especially owning, like, New York properties. Yeah. Holy crap. So, of course, where there's fucking, there's usually babies. So, Mm -hmm. basically, what would happen is, if a woman were to get pregnant, she would, of course, have the baby. Because it's progressive, but it's not that progressive. Mm -hmm. And so, after, also, after a certain point, the cult actually started controlling which members could procreate with who. Um, So, they'd be like, you have to have a baby now with this dude. Anyways, that child would be immediately shipped off to a caretaker, and they would stay with this caretaker until they were old enough to be sent off to a boarding school. The parents would be allowed to visit the baby for, like, an hour to a day max. So this was really, like, this was really, like, the most scandalous part of the cult. Like, people were like, yeah, we don't care that these people are fucking, but, like, the the children, think of the children. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, like, at least something worse wasn't happening to the kids. Like, yeah, is that the best environment for them? No. But, like, you, there's a lot of stories of cults where there's just, like, rampant Abuse. CSA. Yeah. Yeah, and you're just like, oh, my God. Like. <laughs> Maybe this. I mean, either way, like, they're not being brought into the world under good circumstances. However, like, given the fact that they're in a cult, it could have been a lot worse. They're also being sent to, like, boarding schools. So, it's, like, they're getting, like, the best of mm-hmm. education. Is it the most nurturing or, like, the best environment? No. But, like, and I'm sure there's probably some abuse with, like, the caretakers and yeah. stuff. But it's not, like, that's not, like, a main tenet of the information about this cult. So. They're not being asked to drink the Kool-Aid. So. No. That's. They're not that's involved good. at all. 
So during this time, the cult had been living in relative peace, but things started to change in the mid-70s when Jane and Saul separated. Jane, she's like, I got to get out of here. This dude's fucking crazy. This was a bad idea. You know, when we Mm -hmm. were young, it was better, but now we're getting older and it's fucking dumb. Saul, he was fucking around, and he eventually married Joan Harvey, who was a soap opera actor and aspiring stage director. So Joan, not to be confused with Jane, Joan decided that talking, just talking and therapy, that shit's kind of boring. It's kind of a bummer. It wasn't really her thing, and she mainly couldn't use that to her monetary advantage. Mm -hmm. So she just really couldn't work with that situation. But, like, what if you worked through your issues with the magic of theater? So they're working through their problems. She's getting money, and then the the audience is getting a performance so it's like a win-win-win true true that is the direction that she decided they needed to be taking immediately and what better way to do that because like these people they are untrained they are not thespians why don't we merge them with a pre-existing politically raw theater collective called the fourth wall repertory company aka fourth wall political theater and it was basically like if OnlyFans took their top creators and decided to make a sexy version of Hamilton. Wait, I would pay to see that, though. I mean, I would, too, honestly. You heard it here first. We're going to send this mm-hmm. to OnlyFans. Wait, okay. So, I feel like, obviously, the clear choice for Alexander Hamilton, given the fact that they are such a Hamill stan, and they are one of the top creators on OnlyFans... Trisha. Trisha Paytas. And we know that she wants to do musical... They want to do musical theater. So there we go. There is there is our... Yeah. Uh, we will not help produce it in any way. We will literally provide yeah. fodder for someone else to produce. We're literally produce. just uh, creative brainstorming. And then you can pay us for the rights to use that idea. So Mostly we Ashley, because accept- she came up with it. <laughs> we will accept uh, Venmo or PayPal. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, of course, these complexes, it's New York. You're lucky if you have a bathroom, and they did not have a built-in theater. Mm. Obviously, this is now a need for this group. So, in 1978, they started looking at spaces that they could have their profoundly therapeutic performances at, and eventually found a place called the Truck and Warehouse Theater in the East Village. However, there was one small problem with this space that there was already a theater company that had been occupying it, and while their lease was up, they were claiming squatter's rights. Instead of handling things legally, the Sylvanians took things into their own hands. They collected hundreds of their followers, and they marched down to the theater, and they decided they were going to occupy it until these people vacated. So, of course, the cops showed up, and in a super dramatic and petty move, the cult barricaded themselves in the theater and just, like, fucking trashed the place. Like, they destroyed a bunch of sets, costumes, everything. Eventually, three people were arrested from this incident, but all in all, Saul considered it a win, and that was basically, like, an outstanding opening night performance. While this could have just been an isolated incident, it was actually kind of a ramp up into a long list of erratic and hostile moves on Saul's part and, like, kind of getting increasingly deranged, I guess. Mm. The next major catalyst was when the Three Mile Island had their, like, nuclear semi-fallout. 
but this was all the way in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. However, Saul became incredibly concerned that, like, this would destroy Manhattan. And so he drug everyone that would go with him down to Orlando, Florida. So about 250 members, they spent a few weeks in Sunshine State. But when it became apparent that Manhattan was not actually going to be destroyed by nuclear fallout, um, Saul's like, all right, we'll go back. So they moved back to New York. And anytime anyone in the group asked about the whole fiasco, like, would you like to address this, sir? He'd just be like, get the fuck out. He'd just kick him out. Like, you basically could not criticize him for this decision at all. And then also the people who didn't go, who, like, just wanted to stay in Manhattan were like, we'll take our chances. They were instantly made pariahs in the group. He just, like, persecuted them. He was not nice to them. He's like, fuck off. You didn't believe me. Even though nothing happened. After this incident in particular, he was just becoming, like, more and more paranoid and delusional. Now, it's thought that these erratic behaviors were, uh, like, early warning signs of his developing dementia that would eventually deteriorate into Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. But at this point in time, he's just, like, the eccentric leader of a rather large cult with, like, over 500 followers at this point. And they were, like, just brainwashed and were, like, we're just waiting on your every word. Like, we'll do whatever you say, man. That's a lot of followers. Yeah. And in New York. Yeah. Dang. So, in another kind of kooky incident, this one wasn't necessarily as bad, but Saul had a secret steel line room built in the cult's, at this time, new Catskills property, so that Joan could edit her films without the interference from the CIA. Of course, yeah, of course. Makes sense. He also started organizing these, like, insanely detailed and multifaceted logistics plans to evacuate the cult in event of disaster. So he'd be like, this is plan A, this is plan B. Basically, he's like, we got go bags. We're going to evacuate through this bridge if this happens. But if that bridge falls in, we're going to go here. And, Uh like, basically just, like, really overplanning it to the point where it wasn't just, like, oh, we need to make sure that everybody gets out safely. It was, like, this is quickly becoming an obsession. Mm Mm-hmm. Now we're in the 90s, and Saul not only was being erratic, but he was becoming violent and outright intimidating as the dementia progressed. One incident in particular involved a former therapist, Michael Cohen, attempting to leave the group. He's like, fuck you, I'm out. He got as far as Union Square subway station before two of the cult members, one of them being Saul's own son, assaulted him, and they basically just dangled him over the tracks and were like, we're going to drop you unless you come back with us. No. What? Yeah. Another kind of, like, violent incident, and I say kind of, it was very violent. It was an act of, like, potentially unwarranted revenge. Basically, the building next door spilled some paint on their building. And so as revenge or whatever, they decided to go over there in the dead of night, dressed up, like, all in dark clothes and with masks, and beat up the tenants of that building, smashing appliances, sinks, toilets, tubs, and they, like, were ripping open mattresses and just basically causing, like, havoc and being destructive. Um, And, again, it was, like, literally because someone spilt paint on the outside of the (sighs) institute. And I saw the picture of it, and it's, like, really not that much paint, and it could have been an accident. It wasn't, like, somebody had graffitied it. It's just, like, a spill of paint. Right. Oh, crap. I accidentally dropped my paint bucket. Yeah. And I don't think anything really came out of that because they couldn't really identify who it was. And, like, one guy came over to, like, complain to the doorman at the building of the Institute and Mm -hmm. they just, like, beat that guy up. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. 
as we've seen before, the leader of the cult is the foundation of the cult in a kind of a precarious situation if you think of it like a pyramid. Mm -hmm. So when the leader of the cult starts to crumble, the cult starts to crumble, the members start to lose faith or whatever, and that's when shit really starts to hit the fan. So later in the 1980s, two former cult members, one of them being our buddy from before, Paul Sprecher, they filed custody suits to get their kids back. They're like, mm-hmm. of course, like this whole time people were having these kids and Saul was immediately just like shipping them off, never to be seen again. And these dudes were like, hey, we want our fucking kids back. So, of course, during the trials, the custody trials, this brought up all the other fucked up shit that these dudes were doing to the eyes of the media. Mm-hmm. And so that's when like membership really started to decline. They weren't getting any new members. People were leaving because they're like, this is fucking weird. Like, this really is fucked up. This is really not how people live. So as we know, all good things must come to an end. And in 1991, the Slovenians, they came to a hard stop when Saul Bernard Newton, he passed away at the age of 85 from complications with sepsis stemming from his Alzheimer's disease. So you might be asking, like, what happened to the group? What happened to the members? What did they do? They pretty much dispersed immediately. Hmm. Um, Obviously, like, nobody's leading them. I don't know about the leases, how long they were up after the group dissolved. Um, I know at one point there was, like, two groups on Facebook for these members to, like, commiserate, like, what had happened Mm -hmm. to them. And one of them was, like, a very positive, like, oh, this was a great experience. We loved it. And the other one was a very, like, that was fucked up what happened to us here. Oh, no. (laughs) And, like, the dude that ran the one that was, like, everybody thought it was great, um, he actually deleted it, like, after somebody started talking badly about Joan, the one that wanted to be a director. Um, Just, like, immediately deleted it and then people were like dude like why are you doing that as a great community he's like if you want to start your own facebook group so damn bad then start it it's not that hard and but like i don't think anybody ever did um these members they all went on like most of them went on to have pretty successful lives like they were all pretty well educated they had families so i mean other than that nothing really like obviously there was some assaults but nothing really Mm -hmm. that bad happened well the whole thing where like they were telling which people could procreate with who seems a little eugenic-y. Yeah. But... But I don't... I don't know that it was. I mm-hmm. It does seem eugenic-y in practice... Or, like, in theory. But, like, I... I don't know that they were... I don't know that it was a racial thing mm-hmm. or, like, a... Like, a genetic thing. It was I more think of it was a, just like we want control over you thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't think they really cared about sexuality either. Mm-mm. That's one thing I kind of looked for. But, again, this one is kind of a lesser known and lesser documented. Like, I think maybe one or two other podcasts have done episodes on it. But other than that, it's, like, a lot of the information stems from, like, a few articles and interviews with yeah. some of the former members. So it was kind of hard to find research on it. But also I was determined to do it because I was like, we need a not-so-shitty yeah, situation. And I'm really glad... That you went that route because, unfortunately, uh, my story this week gets pretty heavily into uh, sexual abuse, uh, particularly of minors, so. So I picked um, light topics the last couple of weeks. So this week I was like, you know, let's not do a cryptid, let's choose a murder. Unfortunately, upon doing the research for this, I got in too deep. And lost in the sauce to choose a different murder. And this one is fucking depressing. 
like full gore, full terrible people. It's going to wreck you emotionally, most likely. And also one of the things that makes this particularly disturbing is that it involves incest and a fair amount of sexual abuse of minors, which is a shitty topic. Unfortunately, when we talk about killers, especially when it's like men involved, it's kind of the trend here. Um, So let me just like issue the trigger warning here. Maybe fast forward like 30 minutes or so if that's something you're particularly sensitive to. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pick such a shitty subject. So that being said, we're going to talk about a famous killer couple named Fred and Rosemary West. Our first shitbag in the story of many shitbags in the story is Frederick Walter Stephen West. Right off the bat, I hate him uh, just because of his <laughs> name. Like, I, I don't know what it is about people that have multiple names that could all be first names. I instantly just fucking hate them. Like, he was born into this world and then just given the curse of having many first names. So, like, he was bound to be a villain, obviously. Anyway, so this dude, he was born September of 1941 in Bickerton Cottage, Herefordshire. He had, like, loads of siblings. He was the second oldest of six. But it's said that Fred was his mommy's favorite and he was a big old mama's boy. Why does it feel like every time we talk about a male killer, he either, like, loathed his mom or it was the total opposite where his mom was, like, a saint to him? Mommy issues are, like, underlying factor of serial murder, it seems. This whole story, like, you're gonna just think it can't get worse and then just trust me, it's gonna get worse. So, his father on the other hand, uh, was super violent and abusive, and many people speculate that actually his dad may have been a killer himself. So, for example, his first first wife was said to have died from a quote-unquote bee sting, but there's actually some good evidence that he actually had killed her and then covered it up before he married Fred's mom. And this basically, like, do whatever you want for as long as you want, as long as you get away with it kind of attitude really carried over into his parenting style with his children. So he would actually like violently assault women in front of his children and like encourage them to participate in bestiality with like the sheeps and pigs on their farm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so little Fred, he really hung on to these lessons like well into his adulthood, which totally tracks because like we've got to build our bad guy origin story basically so he needs to have a fucked up childhood because that seems to be you know a indicating factor when someone is a shitty murderer is that they had a really fucked up childhood also worth noting that his dad's name is walter steven so he also had multiple first names so obviously he was a shitbag just saying now we did say fred was a mama's boy Unfortunately, his mom, Daisy, was just as much of a waste of human space as his dear old daddy was, so she was, like, super old-fashioned and very strict, and, like, despite his dad being a violent guy, she was actually still kind of seen as, like, the ruler of their house and had, like, a ton of rules and punishments for breaking them. The worst thing about her, by far, like I said, the story can only get worse from where we're going, was that she was, like, a super, like, truly sick woman and would sexually abuse her children. Fred, in particular, he was only 13 when she invited him into her room and subsequently took his virginity. Um, Yeah. So these kids in this house, they lived in such an abusive household that, like, to them, 
that just seemed very normal to them for that to be happening. So despite what we can see and know is like very clear abuse, Fred still like really loved his mom and didn't, you know, see anything wrong with this. Along with all the obvious like parental abuse and trauma, Fred also had a fascination with death from an early age that was sparked by a time when his father killed the family's pet pig in front of Fred and his siblings. And so from this point on, it said that he really enjoyed hunting because he liked the feeling and power of being able to kill small animals. And then as if like things can't get worse in this kid's childhood, at the age of 17, Fred actually suffers a traumatic brain injury from a bike accident. And after this, he's like never the same. Of course, before this, obviously due to the trauma, he like had some issues with right and wrong and like what is normal and not but after this point like he just starts lying more cheating more stealing and bragging about like crimes that he's committing so like his prefrontal cortex or whatever it is that like determines emotions like shame and like deciphering between right right and wrong is just like shot kaput bye-bye that's kind of a theme with like other murderers as well Mm -hmm. though is that like they often suffer traumatic brain injuries and that while they were shitty people to begin with and likely had psychopathic tendencies, they like just really kind of went off the deep end mm-hmm. as far as being just straight up murderers and yeah. disregarding laws. Well, because like prior to that, he maybe had like that sense of like a little bit of guilt or shame or just like knowing that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, but like trying mm-hmm. to be secretive about it. Whereas like after the brain injury, he just like gets more blatant about fucking laissez faire committing crimes and beating people up and it's just bad. Two years after Fred's injury, he actually ends up being charged with uh, R-wording his little sister. (sighs) So he never receives any sort of punishment for this because his sister didn't want to testify against him, which honestly, it kind of makes total sense because why, why would she do that? Like she still had to live within that abusive household with him, with her family, and the mother who, like, already has basically made it known that Fred is her favorite child. So really having, she probably would have just had even more abuse thrown her way if she had actually testified. So Fred, unfortunately, gets off of this charge scot-free and is, you know, that probably just adds to his, like, I can do whatever I want complex that he already has going. The second half of our supervillain duo, uh, Rose West, she's not much fucking better She is born in November of 53 in Devon, England. Ironically, her mom was also named Daisy. Um, So Daisy number two, she suffered from mental illnesses like depression. And at one point while pregnant with Rose, she actually received electric shock therapy to treat it. Um, In which, so for those of you that don't know, they would purposely trigger seizures. And that would allegedly provide relief for mental disorders. This led to Rose having brain trauma (laughs) and all kinds of developmental issues growing up. So she also, much like Fred, had a hard time differentiating between right and wrong and just didn't really feel the emotions like shame or guilt or anything that would prevent her from acting on certain impulses. Again, back to the brain trauma thing. Like, it's kind of a, a big thing within the killer community is that, you know, it really just gets rid of any sort of guilt that you would feel for doing shitty things. Rose also had an abusive father who was schizophrenic, and so he would also often fly off the handles during an episode and not only beat, but sexually abuse his daughter. Now, obviously, there's an origin story about um, how they meet, but 
Fred actually has a pretty shitty track record prior to meeting Rose. Freddie, as an adult, he is actually working as a trucker. And so one day he ends up picking up a hitchhiker who is a Scottish woman named Rena. Now, the two of these people, they become close and Rena actually ends up revealing to Fred that she's pregnant. And so the two of them, they hatch this plan that they're going to get married, I think, so that um, they could, like, live together and in the same country, essentially. Um, so Fred, he agrees to raise Rena's child as his. You know, they do that. They're living together. She's pregnant. They're married. And they eventually move to Glasgow. But when the baby is born, to their surprise, it's a mixed-race baby. Um, and both of them happen to be white. So they have to quickly, like, come up with an idea of how to cover this up. And so they say that Rena had a miscarriage, and they've actually adopted this child. Shortly after the first, or the birth of that child, whose name is Charmaine, they do have a child of their own, so now they've got two daughters. During these years, while he's still married to Rena, Fred becomes acquainted with a 16-year-old girl named Anne through their nanny. So Rena and Fred have a nanny who has a friend named Anne, and that's how they all meet. So they eventually become really close with Anne, who had also like a traumatic, abusive family life of her own. And so they essentially tell her, you can come live with us. And so Anne moves in with Fred and Rena. A lot of shitty things happen in these years, but the brief summation is that Fred, while on his job, he is currently this time working as an ice cream truck man, which, yuck. Like, yeah. given his history, the fact that he's selling ice cream to children on the street... So while on this job, in his ice cream truck, he hits and kills a four-year-old boy. Um, again, never gets charged because it's deemed as an accidental occurrence. Then Rena leaves Fred and the girls. So she gets fed up assuming he's abusive or something like that. Anyway, moral of the story, Rena leaves Fred. She leaves the children with Fred. And then, of course, Fred and 16-year-old Anne start a relationship Eventually, Anne ends up pregnant, and then, out of the blue, Rena comes back, and Fred is like, crap, I'm still married to Rena. I have to, like, hide my pregnant girlfriend, and then so his claim is that Anne moves to an RV park. However, shocker, Anne disappears and is never seen again. Or the baby. Both of them, gone. At this point, Anne, out of the picture, Rena and Fred get back together Rena, again, probably fed up with the abuse, uh, dips out again. And then when she returns, she is, you know, fighting at this point for custody of her children back because she has left the kids with Fred when she dipped out of the marriage. So when she comes back and is trying to, you know, reclaim custody of the kids, she also goes missing and is never seen again. So we can all uh, take a fair guess of what happened to these two. However, Fred... Again, he just has a cycle of doing shitty things and getting away with it. He has disappeared these two women out of his life, and so now he's basically, like, free to sow his wild oats. And so, finally, he meets the Bonnie to his Clyde, Miss Rose. The two meet um, in 1969, which is actually shortly after her 15th birthday. So, he is a grown adult man, twice her age. She is 15. And they meet at a bus station. At first, Rose isn't into it. Apparently, in addition to being a disgusting individual on the inside, Fred also has super poor hygiene. And so, like, he's not brushing his teeth or showering regularly. So Rose is just, like, instantly turned off by that. Being the creepy psychopath that he is, Fred makes it his mission, essentially, to win her over. 
And so he goes to that bus stop every single day and eventually charms her pants off somehow. This could likely be because of her childhood where she was just like seeking acceptance from a man, especially an older male figure because her dad was a little bit abusive. Maybe that's part of it. Eventually, she agrees to go on a date with him. And so within weeks of meeting, Rose and Fred are not only romantically involved, but Fred, who, remember, has two daughters from a previous marriage, offers the idea, like, hey, Rose, you could come be my nanny, and that way um, you could live with me, and then you can just use that as a cover so that my girlfriend could come live with me, and then her parents won't, you know, be that upset by it because she's working as a nanny. Eventually, like, after several months of this setup, Rose decides that she wants to introduce her new boyfriend, Fred, to her family and her parents. Despite being abusive, they can recognize that this is a big fucking no-no, and they're like, "Uh uh-uh, this is not gonna work for us. Fun fact, her parents not only disapprove of him being so much older, but they also start hearing that he might be involved in prostitution and other shady dealings. So they involve the authorities and eventually do have her placed in a home for troubled teens. Unfortunately, this is short-lived, and as soon as she's released from that home, she moves right back in with Fred, and at the age of 15, still, this all happens within a year, at the age of 15, she does end up pregnant with Fred's baby. A couple years go by, Rose, she's now 17, she's a stepmother to two children, biological mother to one, and so what does Fred do at this point? But he goes and gets arrested for stealing tires and gets sent to prison, which leaves Rose on her own at the age of 17 to mother three young girls. And uh, surprise, surprise, she turns out to be a really shitty mother. (laughs) Most of this shitty mother tendency is directed towards her two stepdaughters. In particular, the older of the two, um, Fred's original quote-unquote adopted daughter Charmaine from his first marriage. So while Fred is in prison, Rose is just like horrifically abusing these two girls. And eventually this abuse does lead to the death of Charmaine. In a moment of, like, what do I do with the body, she puts the body in the home's coal cellar until Fred is released from prison. And then when Fred gets home, he doesn't really care. He doesn't mind that much, and he simply takes the body of his firstborn child. Well, I guess biologically not, but, like, he's raised this child from infancy and buries her in the backyard. And at this point, the family decides it's time to move and time for a fresh start. And so they relocate to a house on 25 Cromwell Street. They've moved to that Cromwell Street address. And at this point, uh, Rose, she gives birth to their second child. And in an effort to then supplement Fred's income from, I don't know, stealing tires, selling crack. Like, I don't know what he's doing at this point. Hopefully he's (laughs) not still. Yeah, prostitution. Praying to God that he's not still an ice cream truck man, but who the fuck knows. To supplement Fred's income, she starts advertising her services in a local magazine and then transform a room of their home into her home office, uh, which is basically a sex dungeon where she allegedly performs, um, she's a prostitute, sex worker at this point, advertising in the back pages. And allegedly, she prefers the company of women in these acts and was, like, super into BDSM and doming and, like, really rough, violent sex, basically. So, and we all know, like, that the couple that plays together stays together. So, of course, Rose invites Fred into the mix occasionally. And, like, I'm not here to kink shame at all, but because if you have, like, a sound mind and are able to set healthy boundaries, like, 
go for it. BDSM could be for you, but for these two, like, they clearly don't have a sense of right or wrong or when things have Mm -hmm. gone too far. And so this is just, like, a really terrible combination, essentially. It's just, like, a dangerous combination. Mm -hmm. It's, like, there's no rules. There's no safe words. It's just, like, yeah, they're not really doing it because they want to have a fun interaction they're doing it because Mm -hmm. they want to brutalize people and yeah they don't really care what the end result is if they kill someone or if they you know leave Mm -hmm. it's just like the added benefit of oh we get money from this if they're paying yep precisely and like to make matters worse this room in their home so rose has like a red light installed outside of the door so like when that red light is on they know not to bother mommy she's working Um, But they also have holes drilled, small holes, into the walls in adjacent rooms so that when Fred's not invited, he can sit out there and watch and or film what's happening. These two, they live in, like, domestic fucking horror show bliss and have 11 children together. All the while abusing every single one of them, um, forcing them from a very young age to do chores and then, like, physically beating them if they don't comply And then in the years between 72 and 92, the West children, they're actually admitted to the ER 31 times in what they describe as household accidents. And again, in not getting fucking charged with anything, none of this ever gets reported to child services. 31 trips to the ER, these children, and nothing gets reported ever. I can kind of cut some slack to maybe the people like, intake at these ERs, because it was over the course of 20 years. Mm-hmm. But still, that was an average of, like, one of their children going to the ER, you know, at least one time a year. So they were in the hospital, like, at least once a year with, like, traumatic injuries. But we don't know if, like, they were maybe visiting different ERs where, like, the yeah, staff just wouldn't know. True. But it's still, like, you would think that's that sketchy. some sort of child services would be, like, aware of hospital visits from the same family i don't know it's just shitty to think like there were so many red flags and warnings that just went unchecked for 20 years well and it's like it's before the internet so it's not like they had like an online record of like okay this kid has been Mm -hmm. here this time this time this time this time yeah whereas now like you can see every single hospital visit you've had from like an earache to going Mm -hmm. to you know surgery yeah hopefully nowadays there's like a better system in check than there was then Um, however, thankfully, finally, 20 years later in 1992, the police do intervene in the situation because one of the daughters, um, she was 13 at the time and she actually confides in a friend that her father had been sexually assaulting her, (sighs) which like we all knew it was happening, but it's just shitty. So finally on August 6th of 92, the police do obtain a warrant to search the West's home. And so the whole scheme that these two had been running, it starts to crumble around them, thankfully. Upon searching the home, Rose's prostitution business becomes obvious, which is and maybe was still illegal in that time and place. And not only that, but the couple have 99 homemade porn tapes from people having not consented. And unfortunately, some of these include evidence of Fred's abuse towards his daughter's. Nope. So, no, thank you. yeah, at this point, five of the children are removed from the home and they do start to talk. Things start to come out. Um, so the West children, they started to say that their mother had inflicted most of the physical abuse in the home and that their father frequently said that if 
they told anyone about goings-on in the households that they would be buried under the patio like their eldest sister, Heather, who was the West's firstborn child who had mysteriously disappeared years prior and had been written off by authorities as a runaway. And honestly, who would have blamed her? Like, no Mm -hmm. one. But uh, unfortunately, that is not what happened. So when asked about this, Fred actually, he made jokes and told the investigators that they were dumb for believing the kids having said that. And that it was just a funny family story that he would tell to scare the younger kids. And he actually claimed that Heather was alive and well, supporting herself via prostitution. And Rose initially claimed that she didn't have any knowledge of Heather's whereabouts. Uh, Thankfully, this time, authorities have, you know, gotten wiser and they don't buy it. So they decide that they should dig up the back patio. Upon realizing that he is, like, actually finally well and, like, truly busted... Fred formally admits to the police that he had indeed killed his daughter, Heather, albeit in an act of self-defense. He did confess to strangling Heather in a fit of rage after she had, like, I guess threatened him or whatever, and then he had dismembered her body. I'm trying to think of a less disgusting way to say this, but essentially he dismembers her body in the bathroom of their home with a serrated knife that he used to cut meat. And that her remains had been stored in a garbage can until he had the opportunity to dig her grave in the backyard. On February 26th of 92, um, he had been held in custody until this point. He is able to lead the police to the section of their yard where Heather was buried. And they were able to excavate her remains. However, when excavating, authorities find not two thigh bones, which would have been Heather's, but three So, when presented with this information, Fred confesses that, yeah, okay, there's two other sets of human remains in the yard. One was a woman named Shirley, who he described as being a former tenant of them, and a lesbian, which, unimportant information, but he goes, she was a tenant and a lesbian who had been heavily pregnant with his child at the time of her murder, so it sounds like it was a rape situation. She had been dead since 1978, and then the other victim was described as being Shirley's mate, so it sounds like Shirley's girlfriend, Um, but he either couldn't or wouldn't elaborate on her identity further than that. Both of those sets of remains were also discovered, and so obviously Fred is charged with murders of those two two days later. The police are like, there's gotta be more to this, like, we, we just need to make the executive decision to really just dig up this whole property and yard. So on March 4th, Fred, he realizes they're about to do this, and he makes another bombshell confession and admits to nine more murders, including those of his (laughs) first wife, Rena, whose remains are later found dismembered in locations provided by Fred, and an additional six bodies buried in the cellar, beneath the bathroom floor, and in the yard of the house at Cromwell Street, um, all of which had been dismembered before being buried. Most of these victims, Fred claimed, had been hitchhikers or girls that he had murdered in the 70s after, like, picking them up at bus stops and things. Um, so initially, Fred claimed that these six victims had been killed when they threatened to inform Rose of his infidelity. He killed them, then transported their bodies back to Cromwell Street, where he would continue to abuse their bodies, ugh, and then dismember them and bury them in shallow graves in the backyard. Which, okay... I just want to take a moment to to point out that this is like an urban home in the UK. And if you're familiar with row homes at all, 
you know, that the yards, they're not particularly large and like your neighbors could at any point very easily see into your yard. So the fact that he was able to bury this many bodies in his yard and nobody noticed is a little bit incredible to me. Also, runner prostitution ring out of his home. Also, it might be the vibe where it's like, if you see something, no, you didn't. Mm -hmm. Like, that might be the neighborhood vibe because like I've definitely lived in neighborhoods where it's like, if you see something, no, you didn't. It's keeping the property value low. Fred, he does eventually tell the police that the reason he is dismembering bodies, um, first of all, he's keeping kneecaps as trophies, um, but also he claims that it makes it easier to bury them in a shallow cubicle grave because, like we said, it's a small yard. He needs to preserve space, so if he wants a full graveyard in the backyard, he can't just, like, do the full body, I guess. Fred, he does kind of stick up for his woman a little bit and insists that his wife had no knowledge of any of those murders. However, investigators... They suspect otherwise, thankfully, and Rose then is arrested in April of 94, initially on offenses of rape of an 11-year-old girl, Mm. and then the physical assault of an 8-year-old boy. Both charges are dating from, like, the mid-70s. She's refused bail and then transferred to a maximum security prison, and she's there questioned more closely about the murders. And then on April 25th of that year, she's formally charged with the murders as well. Fred and Rose, they are brought to court in Gloucester on the 30th of June in 1994. He is charged with 11 murders and she is charged with nine. I am assuming the two excess murders are from obviously the first wife and then one of those two lesbian couples. I don't know. In court is actually the first time that Fred and Rose had seen each other. So... Upon getting to court, Fred actually leans forward to, like, offer comfort to his wife and, like, places his hand on her shoulder. And in response, Rose is, like, visibly wants nothing to do with him anymore and, like, shrugs off his hand and, like, winces in discomfort. As police attempted to lead Fred from the hearing, he actually resists their efforts, again, attempting to, like, move towards Rose, who, once again, just, like, doesn't want anything to do with him. It's just, like, visibly ignoring him. This is makes him very sad and he gets very depressed So this only, you know, he's not only in jail for many, many murders, so he's depressed because of that, because he finally got caught and is being held accountable, but because his wife, whom he still claims that he loves, um, is just rejecting him very publicly. It sounds like he didn't care about the fact that he had done a murder. Mm -hmm. He only cared about the fact that his wife was like, no, honey, not tonight. Yeah. I don't want to see you. Yeah. That's essentially what it is. Like, and then... He's, like, I guess, sending Rose a bunch of letters to her jail, and she's just, like, refusing the letters. And he also hears that um, the press is picking up on the story and saying that Rose essentially is assuming the role of, like, a grieving mother who had lost her daughter. And that her husband, you know, was basically abusive, the murdery one, and that she was innocent of the murders. And then she had, like, said that she, like, hated him and all this stuff. Despite years of abuse... Obvious murders, Fred does have two children that would still visit him in jail. Um, And so he is, like, pushing them, like, tell Rose how much I love her. And again, Rose never responds to it. And so Fred eventually gets pissed off at Rose, gets petty, and withdraws his earlier confession to the murder. And then instead accuses his wife of having almost total culpability in all the murders to which he had been charged initially excluding the one of his girlfriend, Anne, which he claimed was committed by his first wife. So he's blaming that murder of Anne 
from earlier in our story on his first wife, Rena. So allegedly, the story he's weaving is that Rena found out about the pregnancy and in a fit of rage murdered Anne, and then he in turn murdered Rena for murdering Anne, basically. So that's the only murderer that he is not blaming on his wife. Although he is not claiming to have murdered Anne, again, he's blamed Rena. He is able to provide the location for the remains and she also is dismembered and a kneecap missing like all of the other bodies. So obviously it seems like he has done this one too. Fred is actually never truly brought to justice because in 95 he hangs himself in his cell by wrapping a rope he constructed from a blanket and just he offs himself. So unfortunately he never gets the justice that he actually deserves, which just really is shitty. Um, And at the bottom of the suicide note they find in his cell was a drawing of a little gravestone, which was written in loving memory, Fred West and Rose West rest in peace where no shadow falls in perfect peace. He waits for his wife, Rose. So he's still obviously in love with this woman um, and offs himself because he is sad and depressed that Rose has rejected him and he's being held accountable for all of his actions because obviously he had never been until this point held accountable for anything he'd done wrong in his life. Thankfully, however, Rose, she does see trial and after seven weeks of these trials, her jury returns a unanimous guilty verdict for all 10 murders that she's being charged for. And so she is sentenced to life in prison emphasizing that she is never going to be eligible for parole. Thank God. Uh, To this day, however, she still protests her innocence. And to that I say, Rose, you can get fucked. (laughs) Just get fucked. You do not deserve any amount of sympathy at all. Essentially, altogether, although they were only formally charged with 10, it's suspected that they had up to an additional 20 victims. So... The number that we can reasonably come up with is 31 victims between Fred and Rose. Fred, before offing himself, claimed that he would reveal the location of one body every year to investigators. I'm assuming this was a ploy to, like, avoid maybe death penalty. I don't know if that's a thing in the UK or it was a thing. Um, But it seems to me like he was holding that information and, like, keeping the justice system hostage to, like, keep himself alive and valuable to them. Fred does make several admissions before his death as to the fate of the victims that were buried on, at Cromwell Street um, to his one of his sons, Stephen. Much of the information about, like, the actual murders and bodies are told, like, in a just disjointed kind of third-party manner through this son. And Fred, I guess, allegedly had let his son know that prior to murdering his victims, he had extensively tortured them. Um, But he had not raped them, and instead he would engage in acts of necrophilia shortly after they died. You know what? There's more disgusting details here about what Fred did with the bodies, but I'm not going to talk about any of it because, honestly, I think we know that, like, he's just a monster. We don't need to really get into any more of that. When it comes to the West children, the four youngest West children, the ones that are born between 78 and 83, they are given new identities, basically to protect them from the notoriety of this case in the family And all those children went immediately into the foster care system. Mm -hmm. Now, among the older children, there unfortunately were several suicide attempts among them. Because obviously, like, dealing with that trauma and the weight of what had happened, uh, clearly, it's it's a lot. And then um, one of them does, unfortunately, successfully commit suicide at the age of 40. I hope for the younger children that they were young enough to, like, receive help and therapy 
and like new families that cared for them, you know, correctly. And then to sum it all up, the house on Cromwell Street eventually is demolished in October of 96 with every single piece of debris destroyed to discourage potential souvenir hunters. It was referred in the media as the House of Horrors and that's the end of my story. And like I said, like there is no happy ending or good resolution to this. Let's do tarot time and hopefully it'll be a little less depressing than the last week. So for this week, we have the Page of Pentacles um, upright, which is like opportunity or like discovery. Um, Then we have the moon reversed, which is like, uh, like this is like confusion or like disbelief. Um, So like maybe you're going to have a period of mastery, but like you're not going to be able, like you have imposter syndrome, like you're not going to be able to believe it. Um, and then we have the three of wands upright and that is like strategy planning, or it could be that you're going on a trip. Um, this is definitely more like strategy. It feels like, like you have to come up with a strategy to kind of overcome your imposter syndrome. These two kind of go together. So the justice card reverse and the ace of pentacles reverse which like these are both like greed and corruption so it's like just you have a little bit of imposter syndrome you're kind of like oh you know what i have a strategy for it because of the corruption that's kind of at play you can't really enact on that strategy correctly and then there's the empress reverse which is like this is like resistance again to um like your change like you wanting to better yourself or have a period of growth you don't feel like you're prepared like you have all your shit together yeah don't have your shit together um but some big daddy energy this week is going to come in and help you so you know that's it shout out to the big daddy energy yeah helping us this week hopefully it's not fucking gross ass What's his face? What's his nuts? Big Daddy Energy. Gross ass. What's his nuts? That's just gonna be his name from now on. Honestly, that's what he (laughs) deserves. Gross ass. What's his nuts? (laughs) Well, friends, do we have any words words of wisdom for this week that aren't super depressing? Uh, don't wait until the last minute to do a fucking thing. Yeah. It's going to be that sad and, but I feel like a lot of these stories are like that, so. Mm-hmm. It's bad, guys. I'm sorry. So that's my words of wisdom is, uh, don't wait till the last minute to do your research and then get too far into the story to re- have time to pick anything else. Um, and then also don't finish your research, be bummed about it, then watch Season 4, Episode 3 of Handmaid's Tale, and then immediately follow it up with Season 2, Episode 1 of Dave, in which it was supposed to be a comedy, but it was actually super depressing, and then go to sleep and just be depressed about it. Don't do that. Don't be me. But also, is that going to stop us from doing that again? No, absolutely not. I will definitely wait until the last minute to do my research next week, but maybe I'll just pick a subject that I know isn't going to be too big of a bummer. Uh, Come back next week where we promise not to emotionally traumatize and abuse you. You can find our socials down below in the description of wherever you're listening. 
links in our bio to everything, yada, yada. If you're not, don't know where it is, you're smart, you'll figure it out, yada, yada, whatever. On that note, okay, bye, guys. Bye. Bye.